When I was in high school, I was in a special program for extremely smart students. No, I'm kidding. That wasn't me. I was in a special program for low-income students. And it was a program called Upward Bound. And the, the purpose of this program was to help get uh, low-income students and students whose parents weren't college-educated. So if the parents didn't have a college degree and, and, and they were considered low-income. And there were some other uh, characteristics uh, of, the, of the students in this program. But this program was called Upward Bound, and the purpose, purpose was to help get these students into college to help with academic support while they were in high school and then college entrance preparation. It it was and continues to be a federally funded program. I think it's still in force right now. And uh, so I was in this program for three years and it was good. I started my sophomore year and then sophomore, junior, senior. And as, as part of this program, we spent six weeks each summer going to a school, going to a nearby university. It was about 30, 40 minutes away from where we lived. And so they wanted us to get used to college, college life. And so they um, paid for us to go to this school, to live in the dorms, to take classes, to give us an idea of what college life was like. And so I got to meet people, students from other other nearby towns, and it was a re- really good uh, experience for me. And uh, so that first summer, we were, uh, those six weeks, and we were only like, like I said, 30 or 40 minutes away from home, but they didn't want us to go home on weekends. They wanted us to be there. They wanted us to get the experience of, of college. And so I remember one time I was, uh, I don't know why I was sitting out on the curb in front of the dorm where we lived. I was just sitting there. I don't know what I was doing, maybe probably missing home, I don't know. So I'm sitting out there, and uh, a girl came uh, who was also in the program. She was older than, than I was. I was a sophomore. I think she was a senior. She came, and uh, she sat down on the curb next to me, started talking. I, I had seen her around, didn't really know her. She was friendly. We talked for a little while. And then she said something to me that, that really made me think. She, uh, she said something like this. She said, now I've noticed, you know, we talked about our backgrounds, and she said, I've noticed that uh, you're, you're different from the other guys here. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I mean, everybody else, they, they, they're, they cuss, they're ugly, they're, you know, this and that. And, and you're, you're different. You don't talk the way they do. And just kind of went through a list of characteristics. And I thought, oh. And she asked me, why is that? Why are you different? So I kind of stumbled through an answer. And, uh, and then, you know, we, then she left. And, and there's more to the story, which, by the way, I told you next week. But uh, that was the first time when she, when she said that to me. It's the first time that I, that I realized, first of all, people are watching what I do. People that I don't know watch what I do, and they form an opinion. They form an opinion about me based on the way that I act. And secondly, it's the first time that I realized that it really does make a difference. You know, when, when, when you serve God, people notice that. It, it, it kind of makes a difference in people's perception. Now, we're in, we're in the middle of a series right now titled Made to Persuade. And this is a series on how God has made us persuaders of people. Last week, we saw how the invitation that Jesus gave his disciples to follow him when he, when he told them, follow me. He, he included in that invitation the, uh, the idea that he would make them fishers of men. Or as Paul would say, persuaders, persuaders of people. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you 
fishers of men. And today I want to talk to you about a surrendered life. And, and the big idea of this message today is that a life surrendered to God is a foundation for persuading people to follow Jesus. A life that is surrendered to God is a foundation for persuading people to follow Jesus. And we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. So if you'd follow along in your Bibles as I, I read this. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that, that one died for all and therefore, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, so what does all this mean? What is Paul talking about in this letter to the Corinthians? Well, first of all, if you look at the beginning, verse 11, when Paul writes, we try to persuade others. See that phrase? We try to persuade others. He's not using the word try in the same way that you and I might use the word try, the way we use it from time to time. Like we might say something well, you know, I, I couldn't get it done, but at least I tried. At least I tried. You know, in other words, try can mean two things. The word try can mean to make an attempt. Or the word try can mean effort. Try can mean attempt or effort. They're similar words, but they have different connotations. The, the word attempt is more generic. It's like, okay, just I'll try to, like trying to meet a goal, I'll, I'll try to reach it. While the word effort has a connotation of hard work. The word effort creates the idea of, in our mind of hard work. In Spanish, effort is esfuerzo, which fuerza comes from that word fuerza, work, strength. Okay, so when he says we try to persuade others, he's not saying we're just making an attempt, but he's saying we're actually putting forth an effort. I like the way the New Living Translation says this. I want you to look at this. This is uh, the New Living Translation says, Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard. That's what the word try means. We work hard to persuade others. That's the idea of what Paul is talking about. He's not saying, well... Just give it a try. The saying is, you know, give it, an old, give it the old college try. Uh, just, just give it a try. Uh, he's not saying that. He's saying, work hard at this. Put forth the effort. Esfuerzate, we would say in Spanish, right? Esfuerzate, put forth the effort that will make the difference. Right? So that's what he's talking about. Now, what exactly is he saying that we should work hard to do? Well, he's saying we should work hard to persuade others to follow Jesus. We work hard to persuade others. That's what we work hard to do. That's what he did and that's what he's teaching us 
to do. You see, our ministry, our calling, is not to persuade God to love the sinners. It's not to persuade God to give our friends and and family members another chance. He already loves them. God loves them. His desire is that no one would perish. His desire is for everybody to be saved, for everybody to come to repentance. So our, our ministry is not to persuade God. Oh God, please love, please love my friend. He's lost. She's lost. No, he loves them already. Our ministry is to persuade people to follow Jesus. It's to persuade people to be reconciled to God. That's what Paul is talking in this letter. He's talking about a ministry of reconciliation. And his ministry of reconciliation is really a ministry of persuasion. The, the idea and, and the theme of persuasion is a common theme in Paul's life. It's a common theme in his writings. Let me take you through four examples here. In Acts 17.4, for example, we see that when he was in Thessalonica, he went into the synagogue three Sabbaths in a row, and the Bible says he persuaded some Jews to follow Jesus. Now that's, that's, that's a lot of hard work, and he worked hard at this because you know, the Jews rejected Jesus, and to this day many Jews reject Jesus. So he, he had to work hard, and he persuaded them by going to the Sabbath three uh, going to the synagogue, rather, three Sabbaths in a row. And then in the very next chapter, Acts 18, he was in Corinth, and uh, verse 4 tells us that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, for as long as he was there, every Sabbath, and here's what it says, Acts 18, 4, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. See, that was his ministry. Trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Ephesus, he entered the synagogue and Acts 19.8 says that he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. Persuasively. He was trying to persuade them. In, uh, in Caesarea, in, uh, in Acts 26, in Caesarea, Paul defended himself against some false charges. He was arrested on charges that he had incited a riot in, in Jerusalem. And so he's taken to, to different uh, men, different courts. And he ended up before King Agrippa. And he defended himself before King Agrippa. At the same time, he laid out the gospel in his defense. He laid out the gospel and uh, he, he spoke clearly to the king. And King Agrippa's famous response was this. After Paul spoke to him, the king said to him, Do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? See, the king knew what Paul was trying to do. He's trying to persuade him to follow Jesus. Do you think you can persuade me in such a short time? And Paul says, well, a short time or a long time. But yes, I'm trying to persuade you and everybody else who is listening. And so that was his ministry. And, and that's why he's able to say, we work hard to persuade others. And he's telling us today that we should work hard. Now, I'm going to ask you four questions today. I'm going to ask you four questions and give you the answers, and, and, and I want you to, to think about these uh, four questions. Because Paul's ministry was a ministry of persuasion, and we're made to persuade. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We're made to persuade, and yet persuading people is the last thing we do. And so that's my first question. Why is that? 
My first question is, why don't we work hard to persuade people to follow Jesus? After all, God made us to persuade, we're made to persuade, but we don't do this. So why don't we work hard to persuade people to follow Jesus? I think one answer could possibly be apathy. I mean, could it be that some of us just don't care that much about lost people? I mean, we would never say it. We would never say, I don't care. People go to hell. People die without God. People's lives are falling apart. I don't care. We would never say that. But our priorities and our lives reveal that reality. If we don't make any time in our busy schedule to, to meet people who are away from the Lord and, and to try to persuade them, or, starting off by just establishing a relationship with them. You know, if, if we don't pray for lost people in, in our uh, neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our families, you know, if lost people are a very low priority to us, then maybe that's the reason we don't, we don't feel compelled to, to work hard to persuade them. There's an apathy about it. Uh, could it be fear? Maybe we're afraid that, that people won't like us. I don't make a fool of myself. You know, live and let live. I, I think just, I live my life and let people live their lives. You know, I don't want people to think that I'm over the top. I'm some crazy Christian talking about Jesus all the time. And so I'm not going to force my, my beliefs down somebody's throat. Well, this, you know, talking to people about Jesus is not forcing your beliefs down somebody's throat. Persuading people is not forcing your beliefs down somebody's throat. But we fear it is because people come back, you know, they, they come back with that to us. Like, hey, don't force your beliefs down on me, down my throat. No, we're not trying to do that. But that keeps us, that fear keeps us from working hard to persuade people to follow Jesus. Could it be a lack of compassion? Might it be that we lack compassion for the lost? Could it be that we have forgotten what it's like to live without hope? What it's like... To live lost and apart from Jesus Christ. I mean, could it be that we, we don't really consider those, that, that those who don't follow Christ, those who don't obey God, the Bible says will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction? Could it be that we don't have compassion, that their life is messed up here and their future without God is going to be even worse? That we just don't care that much? So, I mean, I don't know what it is that we don't feel compelled. Paul felt compelled. He, he says in verse 14 uh, that he felt compelled for Christ's love compels us. He says, because we are convinced, we are persuaded. He was persuaded himself. That's why he worked so hard to persuade others. So here's uh, the second question. How do we persuade others to follow Jesus? How do we do this? Well, the answer, uh, and, and this is a partial answer, because I'm going to answer this question the last two weeks as well of the series, the last two weeks of the series. But a partial answer is, how do we persuade others to follow Jesus? By living a surrendered life. We persuade with a surrendered life. Because people notice our lives. People notice the way we live, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we treat others. They notice how hard we work at our jobs or if we're lazy at our jobs. They notice those things. 
when I was uh, 12 years old, uh, well, my first job working out in the fields, because I had very mean parents who sent me to work when I was 12 in the fields. And so I went out, this man from our church, uh, you know, it was a desai here, you know, cleaning up the, the weeds and pulling weeds out there in the, in the fields. And so this man from a church had a group of, of workers. And so I went and I didn't know what I was doing. So, I, you know, we, we got there early in the morning and, uh, you know, I had my cap and my long sleeve, you know, all that, the, my garden hoe. And um, so the owner of the fields comes, he met us there and he's looking at everybody. He looks at me and he says to the to the the man who had gotten us all together. What about him? Because I was a kid. Everybody else, they were all adults. What about him? And the man uh, from our church says, oh, he's done this before. You know, he lied to me. I had never done that. Was like, I wasn't going to speak up. I was just too scared. So, okay. You know, so we started working and, you know, I figured out what I needed to be doing and all that stuff. But halfway through the, the day or maybe that afternoon, I don't know when it was, I went to get some water. It was near the end of my row. So I went to get some water where the, the trucks were parked, I went out there. And, and when I went out there, there was a man that was with us, and he was getting some water, but he was hiding behind the, the truck. And he told me, let's hide back here for a little while. I was like, I'm not going to hide. Actually, what he said was, vamos a marearnos aquí un rato. You know? <laughs> We're going to hang out here for a little while. You know? And I hang out here for a little while. I was like, oh, no. I got my water, and I went back. You know? But that's when I started to learn, okay, some people just don't like to work, you know? Some people like to. And, and whether it's in the field or in office or in school, they try to look for the easy way out. And people notice that. It affects our, our witness. And so what, what Paul is talking about here, he says, and, and, and let's go back to our text in verse 11. He says, we try to persuade others. And he says, what we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. See, what we are, people see. And people make a judgment about us, and they make a judgment about the things we believe, the things that we say, based on what they see. And so, in verse 12, he says, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, what is seen, what we see, people's lives, rather than what is in the heart. So what Paul is doing is he's, he's giving the Corinthians an inside look into his motivation, why he does what he does. And he's basically saying that he's motivated to persuade others by the responsibility he has before God and also explains that whether it seems to others that he's crazy or not, to people look at our lives and say, yeah, that guy's crazy because he's always in church. She's always in church. He's saying it doesn't matter. It's for God's glory and it's for the benefit of the people that I'm trying to reach. In other words... He wanted people to notice his sincere heart, his sincerity. He wanted people to notice his commitment to God, his commitment to reaching the lost. He was living a a transparent life, a a transparent life, and a surrendered life. He surrendered his life to God for the task of persuading people to follow Jesus. So how do we persuade others to follow Jesus? By living a surrendered life, a surrender to God. Committed to God, committed to doing what God made us to be and made us to do. Now here's question number three. So what does it mean then to live a surrendered life? Well, to live a surrendered life means that we relinquish control of our lives to God in every area 
of our lives. In every area. We surrender control of our lives to God in every area. When you surrender to someone, you, you relinquish control to that person. Right? When we surrender to God, we relinquish control of our lives to Him. And we love to have control, don't we? We love to have control. Have you, have you heard uh, about the, the cars that supposedly we'll be driving within 10 or 15 years? Uh, we won't be driving. We'll be riding because they're actually driverless cars. You know, I was reading about that a few months ago. And those cars are coming. I mean, whether we want to uh, admit it or not, accept it or not, technology is just moving so fast, so fast, faster than ever. And those cars are coming. I mean, right now, have you seen those cars? There are already features in some cars, driverless features. Like, have you seen those cars that can park themselves? Yeah, they're already there. Some of you might own them. Uh, They're already there. The technology is there. Now, there are going to be different types of driverless cars. There are going to be some cars that uh, you can program them. And they say they're going to be safer than, than the way we drive now. Yeah. I'm having a hard time with this because I, I, I don't want to relinquish control to a computer. But they're saying it's going to be safer. So there are different types of, of cars. There's one where you program it to take you to a certain place. But any time during the drive, you can turn off the, the programming and take over and drive yourself. Okay, That's the one I want. If I have to drive one, that's the one I want. But then there are others where, uh, you, uh, where they have steering wheels but you don't have control over them. And then there's others where you, they don't even have steering wheels. That's not even an option. Then there are others where there are no steering wheels and you're facing back. Like you're not even facing the direction you're going. What's the purpose of that? I don't know. But what I'm saying is that this is hard for me because of my age. You know, the young people are like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. I'll try that. But it's hard for me to let go. I want to have control. We love to have control of our lives, not just of driving a car, but we like to have control of our lives. Uh, certainly people, when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to salvation, they, they, they want to have control. They want to feel like they contributed something to being accepted by God, and so they think that their good works can, can uh, help them. The reality is that we can add nothing to God's plan for our salvation. And, you know, whether it's good works, you know, we, we can't add anything uh, and when it comes to the, that's to our salvation. When it comes to the direction of our lives, then we love to have control of that too. But here's what I found out: a life under my control won't persuade anybody to follow Jesus, because because a life that I control 100 percent of the time or the majority of the time, a life that is not fully surrendered to God and I'm making all the calls, is a life that calls attention to me. It calls attention to my life and the things that I've done. I begin to program what I'm doing and look what I achieved and look what degree I got and look what I accomplished and look at this. And so a life in which it's just all about me won't persuade anybody to follow Jesus. It might persuade people to follow me and to say, hey, good job. And, you know, that's, that's, you're doing great. But we have to let go of our lives. Of the direction of our lives. We all have plans. We all have desires for, for our lives. But remember that the foundation for persuading people to follow Jesus is a life that is surrendered to God. When you say to God, have your way in my life. 
So we have to relinquish control of our lives in every area in order to lay a foundation to persuade people. So then the last question is, how do we do this? How do we let go? How do we live a surrendered life? There are lots of ways we could answer this, but I'm going to limit myself to a couple of things. We live a surrendered life by living a life of integrity. By living a life of integrity. If we're going to persuade people to follow Jesus, our persuasion must be founded on a life of integrity. Now the word integrity means to be morally upright. It comes from the word integer. Remember the word integer when you were in school? The word integer means a whole number. Integer means it's not a fraction. It's a complete number. It's a whole number. So integrity is moral wholeness. Integrity is moral completeness. It's not fractions. You know, one of the problems we deal with is that, is that we divide up our life into fractions. We compartmentalize our lives so that we have a life that involves going to church, giving financial offerings, serving in some capacity, but that's just a fragment. Then we have another fragment where we do things for ourselves. This is why there are people who can come to church and can worship and can cry. Then they'll go off and, and they commit all kinds of sins. And they have a life that is devoted to moral impurity. They have a life that's devoted to immorality. They have a life that's devoted to drinking and, and smoking and all kinds of stuff and relationships. But then they come back to church. No, they're loving God and they're just... How is that possible? Because we learn to compartmentalize our life. This is this life. Here's that life. But a life of integrity is not fractions because integer is a whole number, not fractions. So we can't separate it. We can't divide it up that way. Integrity is moral wholeness. Integrity is purity. Integrity is holiness. You know, one of my favorite Bible characters in the Old Testament is Joseph. The New Testament Joseph is also worthy of... of uh, Emulating, But the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis especially resonates with me because Joseph faced many trials and temptations, very uh, severe temptations. But he maintained his integrity. When as a young man he was seduced by an older and no doubt, no doubt, a good looking woman because her husband was you know, Potiphar, the, the leader of the nation. And so she had everything she needed. So no doubt... You know, she, she had the resources to be good looking if she wasn't naturally. So he's being seduced by an older woman. He could have given in to that temptation. You know, it was a, a fierce temptation. But he steadfastly held on to his integrity. He rejected this woman's advances. Now, it got him in trouble. It landed him in jail. But in the end, God honored him for his integrity. And you know what? I need that kind of integrity in my life. I don't want to sell out to the values of the world. I don't want to give in to the fierce temptations that, that I face. I want to be a man of integrity. But for that to happen, I've got to understand my tendencies. I've got to surrender my life to God wholly. And I've got to make good decisions. You know, Because I've learned that nobody ever drifts toward integrity. You don't accidentally become a man of integrity. Or a woman of integrity. You don't, you don't drift toward holiness. Like accidentally. Oh. Look at me. I'm holy. No. You drift away 
from holiness. You drift away from integrity. To be a man of integrity, to be a woman of integrity, you've got to decide to live, to live that way. You've got to set guardrails in your life. You've got to uh, make decisions beforehand. You've got to be proactive. Like David, who ahead of time said that he would not put anything vile, anything unholy in front of his eyes, he said. Like Job, who, who said, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a young maiden. We've got to make those decisions in advance before we get into the situations that tempt us. We've got to make a decision that we're going to live a life of holiness, a life of integrity. Because that's what it means to surrender to God. Because God is a holy God. And He says, be holy, for I am holy. So the way we live a life that's surrendered to God is by living a life of integrity. Secondly, the way that we live a surrendered life is by, by following God's will. By following His will. A surrendered life means that we're constantly looking to God for direction. For clarity concerning His will. You know, His will might not be what you've been planning for your life. But a surrendered life means that we follow God's, God's will. We've had uh, just past few weeks, my wife and I have been uh, just almost constantly thinking and praying for our friend Angie Fernandez. And uh, she's texted my wife a couple of times. Her husband, of course, died last month. And she's texted my wife a couple of times and said, this is really hard. One of her texts to her was, please let me know that you're, that you're holding me up in prayer. And, uh, you know, but I, I think about their lives. You know, missionaries to Spain, they had, she had a career. She worked uh, for the state as, as a, an accountant for the controller, controller's office. Uh, Jesse was, uh, was studying to be an engineer. And uh, they, had, they had the direction of their lives. When they felt the call to missions, they gave that up. When they heard and they felt that God was calling them, they, they gave up their, their will to follow God. And, you know, I know a lot of times we think that God's will is like taking a bitter pill, uh, like bitter medicine. I don't want to take this. But, you know, David said, I delight in your will. So it's possible when we love God and we're surrendered to God, then we'll delight in his will. We'll, we'll be glad to follow God. But the problem is that we want to do things our way, and that eventually leads to disaster. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that appears to be right. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12. So how do we know if, if the path that we're seeking, how do we know if that's right or not? Well, first of all, you don't go by appearances. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. So we don't go by appearances, we go by God's word. What does God's word say? By God's direction. God's word is our standard. There are principles in God's word that will guide us. God's word doesn't speak directly to every specific situation, but there are principles that apply to every situation in our lives. And those principles will guide us because God's word is infallible. Have you ever heard that before? God's word is infallible. What does that word mean? The word infallible means that 
it, that uh, God's word won't mislead us. When we say God's word is infallible, we're saying it won't mislead us. It won't misdirect us. And so we learn to follow God's will. That's what it means to surrender to God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In fact, I, I want us to, to read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 together out loud. Can we do that? Read this out loud. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. That's what we're being called to do. To trust in God and don't lean on our own understanding. Because my understanding is limited. My understanding is, 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 is because my thinking is finite. My understanding is finite. God's understanding is infinite. God says in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are wiser than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. And we've got to understand that. And so don't make a decision on your own without consulting God, without praying, God, what do you want me to do? I have prayed. This sounds silly, but I have prayed before. God, what do you want me to eat today? I know it sounds silly, but sometimes I like, I want to I wanna honor God with the things that I eat too. I should have prayed that last night and I didn't. What do you want me to eat today, Lord? But God's word is infallible. God's principles will guide us. And like I said, don't think of God's will as a bitter dose of medicine. Because sometimes we think he's going to ask us to do something we really don't want to do. Okay, but I'll take my medicine. You know, it's possible that choosing God's will might be difficult. Because, you know, let's face it, sometimes it's opposed to our will. And it might be difficult. But in the end, if we truly love God, we'll delight in his will. So a surrendered life is when we desire to do God's will, when we delight in it. Let me finish with, with this thought. Here is why a surrendered life is important. The unbeliever has to see that God really is first place in our lives. The unbeliever we want to persuade has to see that God really is first place in our lives. The uncommitted person person who's not committed to God has to see that we are really committed to God. We're not just trying to tell them, do as I say and not as I do, but we're actually committed to God. Those that don't love God have to see, they must see that we really do love God. And those that are deceived must see that we, we have the truth. Because people notice and people respond to a surrendered life. So surrender your life to God completely today. You know, bring, it brings peace to our, to our lives when, we're surrendering, when we surrender our lives to Him. It brings peace. It brings stability in the midst of a, of a turbulent world. But it also lays a foundation for you to be a persuader of people. For you to win over your friends and your family to God. So as you look at your life right now, is it fully surrendered? Every area, every category, every subcategory. Do you need to deal with apathy in your life? Do you need to deal with fear? Do you need to deal with a lack of compassion? Those are things that we can confess to God. Ask Him to help us to love the lost. The Bible says that when we, when we sow in tears... We reap in joy. And if we want to reap 
enjoy. We want to reap souls for the kingdom. Then we have to, so we have to plant in tears. Praying with compassion for those that are away from God. So as you look at your life. What do you need to confess before God? And repent, and repent of? What area? And can you say to God, every area of my life is surrendered to you today.